Blog Talk Radio. for the All African Peoples Revolutionary Party, GC. Objective is Pan-Africanism, 
the total liberation and unification of Africa under scientific socialism. Thank you, Brother Anthony. Following Brother Anthony, we bring on Brother Haki. Brother Haki, welcome to Africa on the Move. <laughs> Brother Africa, how you doing? My name is Haki Kamathi Mishoki. Currently with African Awareness, and my thing is, of course, you know, it's all about institution building. But in any event, you know, I recently read an article, and this article was entitled, The Distinction Rebellion is Being Cooked Up by the Alternate Establishment by Andrew Corey Baco. And it talks about the uh, manipulation of the political movement by established powers for the purpose of misdirecting the movement for real change. Now, in the international arena, you know, color, revolution, color revolutions are used to pacify and distract the masses while serving the political objectives of the powerful. For example, what's the institutions? I'm talking about intelligence uh, agencies, the media, business interests, betrayed the election of Viktor Yanukovych of Ukraine as fraudulent. The courts in Ukraine ruled that the elections were, in fact, fraudulent. And his opponent, Viktor Yushchenko, won the second election and declared winner. Just as Western institutions had strategized, the manipulation of Ukrainian masses was very successful. Now, in the U.K., uh, the distinction value strategies have been questioned by progressives, you know, in the U.K. The refusal of his leadership to, to, excuse me, to conflict global temperature change with capitalism is just a strategy that has less to do with enlightenment of the masses but more to do with pacifying them. That is, create perception uh, marching is sufficient to encourage governments to take global warming seriously. The article goes on to say the connection between organized interests, in this case big business, billionaires, and intelligence agencies, defines the objectives of these movements by financing them. In other words, these, organ- these organized entities, um, by paying these groups, they in turn define what their objectives are. And often these objectives have nothing to do in terms of liberation of the masses of people. Now, the article goes and talks about the fact that the Black Lives Matter expects interest in being part of a coalition around global warming. Now, interestingly enough, Brother Africa, you know, I have yet to hear Black Lives Matter equate police abuse and murder of African people as a prerequisite for the maintenance of institutional power and longevity. In fact, when representatives of Black Lives Matter participated in a panel discussion at Virginia Commonwealth University, they either consciously chose not to answer the question about policing and institutional maintenance, or they were instructed to disregard such questions. Interestingly, Black Lives Matter expressed interest in being part of a coalition espousing a concept unfamiliar to many in the African community, namely, you know, a global warming. Now, if the groundwork was established, highlighting the necessity of global warming threat to the planet and humanity, I would understand the strategic significance in terms of being part of that coalition. Now, if all politics are local, uh, one of the things that bothers me, if all politics are local, uh, you know, one of the things is that, you know, you got a situation where Black Lives Matter has been strategically focused on police uh, abuse and murder of African people. And from that Background, you could simply expand uh, the thesis in terms of what you're trying to convey because people have an adequate understanding in terms of what police, ballot, police brutality is. And from that, you can show people in terms of how it's systematic. And getting people to understand systematic is much easier to get people to understand how the system works generally. So to veer from that strategy to now incorporate global warming when the community by and large doesn't deal with the question in terms of global warming, I find that very, very fascinating. But anyway, this underscores the necessity of institutions in the African community to discern what truly empowers and what misleads, because without the clarity, uh, this distinction <coughs> between, you know, what is empowering and what is not, without that distinction being made in the African community, 
then clearly propaganda, you know, has a leg up. So clearly we have to have an institution in terms of clarifying some things that are going on because one of the things is very, very clear as a society, as the economy continues to deconstruct. Uh, one thing is clear, the policies become more and more inane, more and more crazy. So we have to have some clarity in terms of precisely what it, what it is we're up against. We have to have institutions to make that clarity possible. Thank you, Brother Akeem. We then we'll make our transition to Brother Moses. Brother Moses, welcome to Africa on the Move. Thank you, thank you, thank you, and greetings to everyone within the sound of my voice. My name is Robert Andrew Moses, and I've been in the struggle for scientific socialism from the moment I was introduced to Marxism in a government class back in my high school years, 1968. I call Marxism the race to cure racism. I bear witness that there is one God, Jesus, the author and finisher of my faith, and that Mao Zedong is his messenger for government. Fathers, help your children. And thank you, Brother Africa, for allowing me to be on the show. Thank you, Brother Moses. And we make our next transition to Jabari. Brother Jabari, welcome to Africa on the Moon. Thank you. Brother Jabari, resident researcher, looking forward to another insightful program. Appreciate the privilege of being able to be on the program. Peace, everybody. And we now we bring on a special guest for the first part of our program, Brother Opie. Brother Opie, how you doing, my brother? I'm fine. How are you, Brother Africa? What's going on? Good, good, good. good. Well, you know, always, you, you know, yeah, you know, always we like to deal with primary sources. You won't deal with those who know what's going on. So when we talk about this recent transition with our brother Mugabe, we'd like to hear your mm-hmm. perspective in terms of its legacy, uh, its impact on the people, and uh, what's your oh. respect for the future to come on Zimbabwe. So you just talk to our audience and give us an update what's going on with the transition and well, how it may be impacting course, people. Yes. So as we're sitting here um, yesterday, well, there's been this conversation before as long as I can remember when the Osajifo was born, some say September 18, 1909, some people say September 21st. But nevertheless, um, of course, you know, we'll honor him. And um, Abdul Rahman Babu out of uh, Zanzibar, um, whose birthday would have been yesterday. So um, he's definitely um, worthy of being honored. And uh, so I'll start there because um, the president. Um, Comrade R.G. Mugabe, the former president of Zimbabwe, is a product of Nkrumah. So we know that um, he was at St. Mary's. Well, let's just go all the way back. First of all, just um, when we write, when we finally write our history, there could be a segment just talking about the blessing of the 20s. Because within 19, from 1924 to 1926, look at who Mother Africa gave to us. She gave us Mangalizo Sabukwe, founder of the PAC during his time period. She gave us France Fanon during his time period. She gave us Brother Malcolm during his time period. She gave us Patrice Lumumba during his time period. And then she gives us um, Comrade R.G. Mugabe in 1924, on February 21st. So for those of you who use February 21st as a backdrop to talk about the um, barbarism of the FBI and CIA and the police department, which we should in relationship to Brother Malcolm's assassination, February 21st, 1965, in the Audubon Ballroom. 
that's also the day that um, President Mugabe came to us, February 21st. And so we'll start there. But when you talk about him, you have to go back to 1896, and you have to talk about Mbuya Nehanda, the woman spirit medium, who launched the first armed revolt against the British and Rhodesian colonialists in 1896. And before she was hung after being captured, chicken, scratching, biting, crawling, her last words to the mighty Zimbabwean people were, Mafupa angu achu muka, which means my bones will rise, which means that even though she knew that she would be hung, she was not ashamed, and she knew that the struggle would continue. So she had no idea that the founding father of modern Zimbabwe would be born in 1924. So you have to start there. Also, you know that um, for those who know um, Comrade R.G. Mugabe's history, you know that he's part Zimbabwean and part Malawian, which speaks to the dynamic of the artificial borders and boundaries created by the colonizers and the invaders and the rapers and plunderers of Mother Africa. On his father's side, he's Malawian. And that's an important point because he comes to you us nine years after Reverend John Chilimbwe who came to Virginia Theological Seminary to study in the United States, but then he went back to Mali, and in 1915, Malawi, he did in 1915 what Nat Turner did in 1831, what Gabriel Prosser was planning to do in 1800, and what Denmark Vesey was trying to do, what Charles Durslander did in New Orleans, what the Maroons did in Jamaica, did in Suriname, what we did in Haiti, have a rebellion. So that's the stock that Comrade R.G. Mugabe comes from. And, of course, he got the chance to go to Ghana studying at St. Mary's College. I mean, teaching there at Takarati. And it was there that he got a chance to take, for the first time, set his feet on independent soil, which is something that many Africans till this day have never had the opportunity to do. If you, if you haven't been outside the United States and you were born here, you've never put your foot on independent soil. If you were born in um, Brazil, you never put your foot on independent soil. So there are many crucial places in the diaspora where we haven't put our foot on independent soil. So Comrade Robert Gabriel Mugabe was afforded that privilege in the three years that he was in Ghana. And, of course, obviously the powerful statement of the Osajifo echoed in his mind, the independence of Ghana is meaningless unless it's linked to the independence of the entire African continent. So that's what inspired him to go back to Rhodesia as it was called then, Southern Rhodesia, which had been under the control of the British South African Company and later the Universal Declaration of Independence. But he didn't come back to Zimbabwe empty-handed. He came with Sally Heffron, who later became Sally Mugabe, who was also following the other dictum of Osajifo. The best way to measure the degree of a country's revolutionary awareness is by the political maturity of the women. And it's one thing to stand on platforms and to share this analysis. It's one thing to expand your um, ideological repertoire. But when you see practical examples, concrete examples, sterling examples of the sentiments that we echo, the language we like to propagate, it empowers us all. It emanates the African fighting spirit. And Comrade Sally Mugabe, who is a national hero in Zimbabwe, buried in the National Heroes Acre, she only lived 15 years as an independent woman. She, the first three years of Ghana's independence and the first 12 years of Zimbabwe's independence because she left us in 1992. So, and the work that she did 
with um, children in Zimbabwe organizing a children's conference dealing with children whose mothers were prostitutes, children who had leprosy, children who had HIV, AIDS, cholera, and malaria, laid the foundation for June 16th to become the day we not only commemorate Soweto, but we, com- we consider that the day of the African child. And we look at the issues that confront African children at home and abroad. That is because of her work. And then, of course, both of them came back to battle-tested Rhodesia, southern Rhodesia, and they played a very crucial role, him doing 11 years in prison, him um, maintaining his resolve, because one of the things that the late vice president of Zimbabwe, His Excellency Joseph Masika, the longest in prison freedom fighter during the Liberation War, he told me in his living room, comrades, jail can either harden your resolve or completely break your spirit. And based on the accounts of many, the prisons in Salisbury, the prisons in Kwekwe, the prisons in a place called Kentucky in Zimbabwe were worse than Robben Island. And Comrade R.G. Mugabe did not even have a trial. They just snatched him off the streets for 11 years. And the moment he was released, he escapes to Mozambique, and he leads the final phase. He engineers the final phase of the armed struggle. And when you look at it, he's also a product of the student movement. Those of us who um, were so blessed to have the Student Nonviolence Coordinating Committee, the same way that... You look at the role of SNCC in the civil and human rights movement, or if you want to go back to the 1930s and look at the Southern Negro Youth Congress, we all know, those of us who have a Pan-Africanist foundation, we know about the mighty Fort Hare University, Fort Hare where Nyerere cut his teeth in struggle, Fort Hare where Herbert Chitepo cut his teeth in struggle, Fort Hare where Madiba Nelson Mandela cut his teeth in struggle, where Mangalizo Robert Sabukwe cut his teeth in struggle. And the beautiful thing about that is when you go back and you look at the movement at Fort Hare, which produced all these fighters, which produced all these warriors, at, when they were students, they were, their faces were smothered in the pages of the writing of Mahatma Gandhi. And isn't it ironic that all those comrades who read Gandhi upwards, downwards, sideways, to the left, to the right, vertically, horizontally, They had no problem when they reached a certain level of political maturity to pick up the gun and liberate their territories. Chitepo read his Gandhi. Subukwe read his Gandhi. Mugabe read his Gandhi. And all of them ended up taking up arms to liberate themselves from the clutches of colonialism, settler colonialism, as they say in Zimbabwe, classical colonialism. So it's very important that when you look at them, uh, in terms of attributes, In Zimbabwe, when you look at Zimbabwe, you have to look at Zimbabwe in the context of education. They have a 97% literacy rate, thanks to the mighty Cuban Revolution, who between 1986 and 1996, an agreement was brokered between Comandante Fidel Castro and Comrade R.G. Mugabe. 3,000 Zimbabwean teachers went to Havana for training at at the island of youth, and they became the bedrock of the educational system in Zimbabwe. When we talk about the agricultural revolution in Africa, Zimbabwe is the face of that agricultural revolution because of the land reclamation program. When we talk from Nkrumah's perspective about the importance of protecting, safeguarding, liberated zones, liberated territory, Zimbabwe stands out once again because in addition to being able to consolidate their power base, 
as soon as their armed struggle was over, as soon as they prevailed, emerged victorious, they had to go back into. They had to go back into um, Mozambique, fifty thousand guerrillas, and assist Comrade Simon Marshall, the first president of Mozambique, and the mighty fighters in Free Limo to hold off Renamo. And when you look at the history of what Dr. King's former aide, Bayard Rustin, was so threatened by when he completely embraced social democracy. And today, as we look at those three stooges of intellectual thought, whether we're talking about social democracy, whether we're talking about um, social justice, or whether we're talking about social critiques, it was Bayard Rustin under the banner of social democracy who, when he came out and said that UNITA should be supported instead of NPLA, he said that that was paramount because it would stop the spread of Cuba's influence in Southern Africa. And it's interesting that when you have that, um, what we call the Marxist-Leninist interpretation of Cuban solidarity, it omits the fact that Thomas Sankara is the first recipient of the Jose Marti Award. Comrade R.G. Mugabe is the second recipient of that award. You only hear about Nelson Mandela, and you only hear about Cuba in relationship to the MPLA. Where in all actuality, you have to go back and say Osage Fode, Dr. Kwame Nkrumah, and Gamal Abdel Nasser, they're the first heads of state, period, to recognize the Cuban Revolution. You have to talk about Ahmed Bimbella refusing Kennedy's overture to bypass his trip to Cuba in order to be more politically cozy with the United States. You have to talk about Cuba's role in Zimbabwe. You have to talk about Cuba's role in Burkina Faso, where three and a half million children were vaccinated to protect them from meningitis and yellow fever. Cuba's reach in Africa is pan-African in every sense. You can't just talk about the Marxist-Leninist relationships and leave it there. The very first place Comandante Fidel went and the very first time he adorned African attire was in Guinea. And he, the only other person he's called a, an apostle besides Jose Marti, his philosophical guide, is Akne Sekutsure, leader of the Guinean Revolution. So back to Zimbabwe. So in the context of Zimbabwe, protecting Mozambique, was just as important as Cuba protecting Angola. Then you can come up to 1999 if you want to do that. And before the land reclamation program, Comrade R.G. Mugabe was overseeing the SADC Defense Forces, the Southern African Development Community. For your listeners who don't know, that's the umbrella of all of Southern Africa. And he coordinated Zimbabwe's fighting forces, Namibia's fighting forces, and Angola's fighting forces to prevent an attempt by U.S. EU imperialism to reinvade the Congo. Because Susan Rice at the time was the Assistant Secretary for African Affairs, making her the spokesperson for the Clinton administration on African issues. And her coming out party was to orchestrate and coordinate a reinvasion of the Congo to reinstall Mobutu's network. ZANU, Zimbabwe's fighting forces, Namibia's fighting forces, Angola's fighting forces stopped that from happening. So in the context of agriculture, where you see 68% of the farming in Zimbabwe being done by women, speaking of women, the decision by Comrade R.G. Mugabe to appoint Joyce Mujuru, who during her days as a guerrilla was the highest ranking woman guerrilla fighter in Zimbabwe's armed struggle, the first guerrilla to shoot down a Rhodesian warplane. She became the vice president after the death of Simon Muzinda who was Comrade R.G. Mugabe's best friend. 
And if you go back and look at the calendar, and putting her in that strategic position made it possible for Joyce Banda to be president of Malawi, made it pre- possible for Ellen Johnson Sirleaf to be president of uh, Liberia. Coming to tourism now, as we see how the year of um, return is being um, the face of that is Akufa Ado, who came out the womb anti Nkrumahs. His uncle, his grand uncle, was um, Ata, and Ata, I mean J.B. Donkwa, who was the founder of the United Gold Coast Convention, which the Osajifu joined initially, but when he realized it wasn't revolutionary, broke away and established a Convention People's Party. He was the one who ran against Nkrumah when the Constitution made a shift in 1960, and Akufa Ado's uncle, Daniel Ata, started the first opposition party to the Convention People's Party. The reason I bring that up is because the United States and the European Union sabotaged the former Minister of Tourism and Hospitality, Walter Mzimbi, from becoming the first African to be the Secretary General of the United Nations World Tourism Organization, which would have changed the landscape. And when we go back to the warning of Maurice Bishop in, in the speech that many people felt got him assassinated when he talked about a new tourism in Africa, a new tourism in the Caribbean a new tourism in Latin America, a new anti-imperialist tourism that would protect us from the frivolity associated with imperialist culture. He talked about the failure to do this. Neo-colonialist forces would use tourism as their main weapon to undermine revolutionary progress. And for all of you who are going to Ghana, like gamblers go to Las Vegas and gamblers go to Atlantic City, you should know who Akufa Ado is. And his year of return agenda is directly attached to the work of the U.S. Africa Business Center, which is the African component of the United States Chamber of Commerce. So what you're watching is a pan-Africanizing neocolonialism. Comrade R.G. Mugabe showed us in, at the leadership of ZANU-PF how to fight against civilian neocolonialism. Those of us who, whether we come out of the 60s, come out of the 70s, come out of the 80s, come out of the 90s, we know military neocolonialism. We know the wrath of Mobutu. We know the wrath of Mubarak. We know the wrath of Blake Compré. We know the wrath of Bernard Cord in Grenada. We know the wrath of Baby and Papa Doc. We know the wrath of Somoza in Nicaragua. We know the wrath of Duarte in El Salvador. We're all too familiar with that. But what happened was when imperialism decided that the one-party state in Africa was the biggest threat to their agenda, they began to talk about multi-party democracy. And in Southern Africa, which is the baby of Africa, they began to go to work in the 1990s. The first move was to get rid of Kenneth Kaunda and um, his party, UNIP, the United National Independence Party which when we take a look at anti-colonial resistance, you only had a handful of parties. Convention People's Party in Ghana, the Democratic Party of Guinea before them, the Party for the Independence of Guinea and Cape Verde, 
the smallest party being the party that fellow Kuti's mother started in Nigeria, the People Communist Party. But then you had the United National Independence Party. As Kwame Ture taught the 90s generation, the importance of a party is people are against the same thing, but also for the same thing, even though there are different levels of understanding, different levels of commitment, different levels of appreciation, different levels of involvement. You still have a party that bridges the sentiments, bridges the thought, bridges the feelings, bridges the pulse of the people. So they went to work on Kaunda and started something called the Movement for Multi-Party Democracy. They defeated Zambia in an election. The next goal was Zimbabwe. So in 1999, you have the Movement for Democratic Change started, which was created by the Westminster Foundation for Democracy. And Morgan Shangrai was told by imperialism to leave the Zimbabwe Congress of Trade Unions and start and run MDC. And you have to also understand in the context of trade unions, what Zimbabwe, what Comrade R.G. Mugabe did is he let people know, as we say in certain circles dialectically, or those of us who um, don't want to pay attention to the concept of dialectic, let's take you way back to the philosophers of the days of Kimi, where we talked about the law of opposites. So we know that the trade unions in the Caribbean the trade unions in Africa, the trade unions in Latin America, they all have a relationship with the International Labor Solidarity Center, which in recent years has broke away from the AFL-CIO, but always was a front for the CIA. And it was a Zimbabwean named Ruben Jamila who completed a program that Tom and Boya persuaded Milton Obote and Uganda to start, dealing with reactionary trade union training. But when you look at Zimbabwe's politics, Joshua Nkomo, who they, we call Father Zimbabwe, he was a trade unionist. Simon Muzenda, the late vice president and national hero in Zimbabwe, he was a trade unionist. Um, Joseph Masika, who we mentioned earlier, he was a trade unionist. So when imperialism was attempting to say that um, the laborers in Zimbabwe were being exploited, this was nothing but an imperialist trick. So... Comrade R.G. Mugabe and ZANU-PF have showed us how to fight against civilian neocolonialism. And this is why when Trans-Africa Forum was saying that they couldn't come out and say they supported MDC outright, but they would try to pull wool over the masses' eyes and say, we're with the trade union. Like, we didn't know that Morgan Shangrai was the bridge to the Zimbabwe Congress of Trade Unions to the movement for democratic um, change. Um, the, th the next thing I want to deal with real quickly is the fact that as we close, I'll say this much, and this may get a giggle from some of you, but I'm dead serious. When we look at, we remember Kwame Ture teaching us, always using the references of the Africans in Baton Rouge, he, he would say if they say, what would he say? If you see me fighting with a bear, help the bear pour honey on me, I don't need help. And then he would talk about the Africans in the Caribbean, the rougher the water, the stronger the swimmer. Following that logic, I can tell you, 17 years of working side by side with our comrades in Zimbabwe, in the capacity as the U.S. correspondent to the Herald, being an organizer with the Pan-African Liberation Organization, now defunct before that, as the external relations office of the Zimbabwe Cuba Friendship Association, here's my humble opinion. Cuba and Venezuelan work is multiplication and division. Palestinian work is addition and subtraction. Now, they must be done. History obligates us to do them. I'm going to say right here that Zimbabwean work is calculus 
and trigonometry. Why do I say that? I don't have to lock horns with the Black Caucus because they voted for the blockade on Cuba. They voted for the sanctions on Zimbabwe. Working hand by hand with George Bush and Tony Blair to overthrow ZANU-PF. I don't have to lock horns with Trans-Africa over the question of Cuba and Venezuela. As a matter of fact, James Early may spend more time in Cuba and Venezuela than he does in Washington, D.C. I don't have that problem. But we have it when it comes to Zimbabwe because Trans-Africa Forum felt justified in working in harmony with the National Endowment for Democracy to funnel money to 14 civil society groups in Zimbabwe. I don't have to worry about um, the Black Alliance of Peace under the leadership of Ajamu Baraka is not accusing Cuba of working with AFRICOM, not accusing Venezuela of working with AFRICOM, but they're accusing Zimbabwe of working with AFRICOM. And we've brought it to the attention that the Zimbabwean government emphatically denies their claim, and we're giving them till the end of this year to write a written apology to the Zimbabwean people, the Zimbabwean government, and the ruling party that they were quick on the draw. They didn't cross their I's. I mean, they didn't dot their I's. They didn't cross their T's. There was a flaw in their research. They need to get that straight because claiming that Zimbabwe has ties to AFRICOM, that's dangerous, that's isolationist, that's opportunist. And, and um, you, you know, and the, per, and the person within BAP that I want to deal with specifically on this is Mr. Ajamu Baraka because he's the one considering a presidential run. And it also calls into question um, what is IPS's role in this, because IPS has some explaining to do on the Venezuela question. How do you say that you're for Venezuela when um, you have a relationship to George Soros and the number one regime change agent that's Venezuelan in this country for the record is not Juan Guiardo. It is Moses Niam who advises Guiardo from behind the scenes who was the editor of the right-wing foreign policy magazine, who was on the board of directors of the Open Society, George Soros' organization. So that's the conversation we want to have with them. Um, we've had to go up against, we've had to go up against white liberals who lean to the left on the question of Zimbabwe. So Zimbabwe has, brought, has, has magnified the racism within the solidarity circles in this country because those who will march for Cuba at the drop of a hat, and they should. March for Venezuela at the drop of a hat, and they should. March for Palestine at the drop of a hat, and they should. March for um, Colombia. Deal with all a, a variety of issues. When it comes to Zimbabwe, they don't even have the temerity to come out and say, regardless of what they may feel, they should at least say that the sanctions should be lifted. Because how can you be against the blockade in Cuba, against the sanctions on Venezuela, but when it comes to Zimbabwe and Eritrea, maybe because that's the dark side of the moon, or you figure that that's a nigger thing and niggers should deal with that. So however that's handled, but we as Africans take pleasure in knowing that we're the ones that are supposed to wage that fight. We're the ones that are supposed to wage that struggle. And of course, George Soros's um, beneficiaries, and when you take a look at George Soros, the only thing I can compare his stranglehold on people who consider themselves the left 
It's the closest thing we saw to the stranglehold that Sun Young Moon had on the churches in this country in the 70s. But it reminds us of he can purchase our organizations just as quickly as the conquerors used to purchase us at auction. It is disgusting. It is repulsive. It is unacceptable. And so the reason that many of these organizations who are in bed with George Soros can't come out and stop uh, and deal with the question of Zimbabwe is because they'd be going against their co-workers because there are 350 civil society organizations in Zimbabwe alone that are on George Soros' payroll. So Comrade R.G. Mugabe, through the land reclamation program, through the indigenization program, Zimbabwe has the distinction of being the only nation attacked by imperialism for blood diamonds where there wasn't a war. But guess what? The main watchdog on diamonds is Global Witness. Global Witness is financed by the National Endowment for Democracy. And I say this because when I had to go to the U.S. Institute of Peace, which is the think tank that oversees NED, oversees NDI, oversees the International Republican Institute, oversees all the reactionary white supremacist think tanks in this country, they said that Zimbabwe has been kicking their tail in this propaganda war. And they... And this is the reason that they have, whether it came out of Obama's mouth, whether it's come out of Trump's mouth, whether it came out of Bush's mouth, whether it came out of Maxine Waters' mouth, Barbara Lee's mouth, any of these people, they would echo the same thing. While it is a small country, Zimbabwe represents a peculiar problem for Western interests. And when I sat down with Comrade R.G. Mugabe in 2003, at his suite at the, while he was here for the um, General Assembly, we had a one-hour meeting with him. And I understood what Kwame Therese felt like when he said he was in a different space when he had lunch with Ho Chi Minh. That's what it was like to be in the presence of Comrade R.G. Mugabe. And he said that his only criticism about his comrades in the West, his comrades in the diaspora, was we have a very romantic and adventurous perception of African developments. We pay too much attention to coups, too much attention to assassinations, too much attention to invasions, and very little to the delicate details that isolate a nation, making them vulnerable to a coup, vulnerable to an assassination, vulnerable to an invasion, an unwelcomed invasion. And now, since the British government feels comfortable telling you that the former uh, British Foreign Secretary, Lord Guthrie, was having conversations with Tony Blair about a military invasion of Zimbabwe. Former South African President Thabo Mbeki did tell you that Blair attempted to get coerce him to work on an invasion of Zimbabwe right around the same time that Desmond Tutu said a military option should not be ruled out. In connection to Mandela and Comrade R.G. Mugabe, people have been doing that. Tell them it's not fair to Madiba Nelson Mandela. Staying true to United Front politics, Comrade R.G. Mugabe not only never responded to, never attacked Nelson Mandela back, he never responded to Mandela's attacks on him. Mandela said to Western media before that before he got out of prison, Comrade R.G. Mugabe was the most popular freedom fighter in Southern Africa, and he never wanted him to get out of jail because he would surpass him. In, 2000, in 1999, when the fighting forces of Zimbabwe, Namibia, and Angola defended the Congo's ter- territorial integrity, it was Nelson Madiba Mandela who stood in their way and voted against them, even though he was outvoted. In 2008, 
a the elders group was created on the dime of Sir Richard Branson and Virgin Airlines, who has been financing MDC for the beginning. Because if MDC ever came to power in Zimbabwe, they would relinquish control of the tobacco industry. I mean, the tourism industry in Zimbabwe to Sir Richard Branson and Virgin Airlines. He put up $18 million to start what was called the Elders Group. Mandela was part of it. Jimmy Carter is part of it. Gracia Marshall Mandela is part of it. Kofi Annan is part of it. And they tried to force their way into Zimbabwe saying they were on a fact-finding mission. And the interesting thing is the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa, it gained its inspiration when, from when Comrade Mugabe decided not to execute Ian Smith and the Rhodesian Fighting Forces and to move on. And Comrade R.G. Mugabe got our land back. Expecting Nelson Mandela to fight for land, you would have been better off getting, expecting Dr. King to go to Africa for guerrilla training and to come back and call for Africans to take up arms in Louisiana. And as Nina Simone said, goddamn Mississippi, that's as much of a chance as you had expecting Madiba Nelson Mandela to, to fight for land. So Comrade R.G. Mugabe, that's his legacy in a, in a nutshell. And for many of you who saw his command of the colonial language, even though our ancestors created 5,000 languages since the beginning of time, the harsh reality is we communicate in seven, English, Spanish, French, German, Arabic, Italian, and Portuguese. And he had English so mastered that when he spoke in 2002 at the Earth Summit in Johannesburg and said, Blair, you keep your England, I'll keep my Zimbabwe, the world heard him loud and clear. When he came to the UN in 2013 and said, for those of you who keep meddling in our affairs, three words, shame, 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 and Barbara Lee got up and walked out, they heard him loud and clear. When he, they tried to block him from speaking in Italy at the United Nations Food and Agriculture Summit, his voice was heard loud and clear. In 2007, when the United States and European Union conspired to block Zimbabwe from sharing the UN Committee for Sustainable Development, they were heard loud and clear. In 2008, when the United States and European Union went to the UN Security Council and tried to get them to impose additional sanctions on Zimbabwe, only to watch that be vetoed by Russia and China, the world, was, it was loud and clear. Um, they've tried to sabotage elections in Zimbabwe. They try to keep these civil society groups going. They try to get these organizations that teeter to the left or get to the left when it's convenient to cause confusion, put out lies, put out misinformation. None of it is worked. But the bottom line is this work isn't easy, but it's the type of work that builds character. It's the type of work that clearly defines what our purpose should be. And we're just honored that we've been able to make a small contribution to it. And working under Comrade R.G. Mugabe's leadership, gaining inspiration from him, gaining encouragement from him, and having him tell us from his own mouth how he appreciated the work that we did, the little bit of work we did, three albums of music um, with artists all over the world, that's not much. Three children's plays about Zimbabwe, that's not that much. An appeal to talk about how they were frozen out of the HIV-AIDS pool, HIV pool, that's not that much. The broadest appeal, embracing comrades from all over the world who are against the sanctions, 
that's not that much. Over 400 articles that forced the United States Institute of Peace, along with the New African Magazine, along with different media outlets all, all over this country, all over the Caribbean, that have defied their lives. That's not that much. Watching them maintain their resolve when they were suspended from the British Commonwealth, that's not that much. We've just done a little bit. But what we will say is this is an area we need to begin to treat areas like Zimbabwe like you approach a construction site. The only people who go to construction sites are people who would like to work there and people who already work there. And we know that most people, they go in the other direction. I saw many people on social media get weighing in on the situation who never lifted a fingernail to defend the integrity of the Zimbabwean people. So the only thing I'll say to you is if you really felt the loss, if you really embraced him like you said you did, it's not too late. You can join this worldwide struggle to get the sanctions on Zimbabwe lifted. And like I said, it's not easy. It's not for the weak. It's not for the consistently inconsistent. you got to dig in. Thank you very much, Brother Africa. I hope I didn't go over my time. And I hope that um, I was able to share some things that are in line with what you're using Africa on the move to do. I was honored to be on tonight. We thank you for this information. And, Brother Opie, for those who may have heard your presentation or hear your presentation, if they would like to contact you for further information, how can they do that? Or even invite you to that can, um, How yes, can they do that? And, and, and good. Oh, yes, because um, what we would like them to contact us for, though, is if you're interested in beginning a campaign in your communities to send medical equipment to the Cuban doctors in Zimbabwe under the Cuba or More Africa Project through the Zimbabwe Cuba Friendship Association, that's our first step. And eventually the goal is to duplicate the work that Pastors for Peace and IFCO does in this country to aid Cuba's medical and humanitarian work on the African continent, since Africa is primary for us. If for ambassadors for peace, they've got it nailed down to a science how they do it in the United States. Those caravans are incredible. They're breathtaking, and they inspire us. There's no reason why we can't do the same for Africa. That's what we want to do. Um, it may sound lofty. It may sound idealistic, but I have enough confidence in our people that we can get that done. So when you contact us, you can contact me at email, O-B-I-E-G-B, una15 at gmail.com that's the best way to contact me and we're looking to um we're looking to push everybody to do that work because um if you because what it is is it's the first step towards giving the african continent an alternative to the united states agency for international development who maintains their grip on africa through bribery and first-rate manipulation textbook manipulation so that's, that's how we'd like people to contact us. This is something that we, we have to really address. And for those who have reduced Africa to just West Africa or one particular nation in West Africa, Africa's too big for that. Africa's too valuable for that. Africa's too important. And, you know, we want to embrace the fighters, not the capitulators. So for those of you who are willing to overlook capitulation, just to enjoy yourself on the ground. And, oh, and this is the last thing I want to say. What the Zimbabwe question did is it gave us another creative angle to challenge imperialism's propaganda about immigration. Let me tell you all something. When you're a regime change agent, 
meaning that your the purpose of you being here is to work to overthrow a country, a government that they cannot control, that they cannot manipulate, or they cannot manipulate. You don't have immigration issues. If you come here saying that Emerson Monongagwa is worse than Comrade R.G. Mugabe and you want to work to overthrow Zanu-Pia, you come right through the doors. If you come here saying that um, you're sick and tired of the Cuban Revolution and you want to um, jumpstart Alpha 66 and Brothers to the Rescue and the Cuban-American National Foundation, you come right in the door. You come here saying you want to help Yado, you want to help Moses Neon, you can in Venezuela, you can come right through the door. You come here from Eritrea and say you're tired of Afwerki, it's time for him to go, you can come right through the door. And unfortunately, when people who are politically domesticated and don't deal with issues outside the borders and parameters of the United States of America, when they discuss immigration, they never discuss how that is used as the number one um, strategy and the number one methodology to train, bribe, and expand the regime change mouthpieces and agents representing different nations in the world who still have the integrity to stand up to the big bad world. So thank you guys very much. Um, It's always an honor to be on with you. Until next time, we'll keep struggling because we know you'll keep struggling. Take care. Thank you, Brother Opie. Thank you very much. Well, as audience, you have heard the legacy presentation by Brother Opie Bunu. And what we're going to do is we're going to pause for this calls, and when we come back, we will continue to have some open topics of discussion. And real shortly, we should have our guests arriving, Jane Jordan and Eunice Escobar. We're going to have a discussion on what's going on in Colombia. But we're going to pause for this calls. We'll be right back. This is Africa on the moon.
Africa on the move. We have been expecting another phone call from Sister Empathy um, for the Women Movement in March to call in. We have received messages that she's having difficulties to call in. We're going to see if we can reach out to her. But until then, panelists, let's continue to discuss what's going on in our world community. I start off with you, Brother Anthony, while you're talking. We're going to see if I can reach out and get Sister Empathy on. But go ahead, Brother Anthony. What's going on in your world community? Okay. Um, first, uh, let's see. Interesting, as a follow-up uh, to the discussion we had earlier, uh, the U.S. is, ty- is, ty- is intensifying its blockade against Cuba for its international stance uh, against imperialism in general and its support of the Venezuelan revolutionary process in particular. And uh, it is uh, trying, it is making it harder uh, for, for for Cubans who live in the U.S. to send remittances uh, to their uh, uh, to their uh, 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 f- fellow Cubans in Cuba, and also. Excuse me for one second, Anthony. I'm trying to see if I can get touch bases. Okay. Empress, just hold for one second, and let's see if we can get in. Greetings. Greetings, Sister Empress. How you doing? All right, all right. Oh, we finally got you in, Sister. We said, all right. Well, what we want to do, Sister <laughs> Empress, we're on a schedule. We know it's been a very hard time trying to get in, but uh, we got you now. We want you to all right. have a platform to share with the, with the people, the listening audience, a particular project that you have going on, and how can the people support it? Oh, wonderful. Well, greetings, everyone. And Brother Africa, thank you for <laughs> taking the time to bring me into this dialogue. And I know it's a very important conversation that you all are having and will be having uh, for the duration of the program, uh, particularly when it comes to uh, talking about our people throughout the diaspora. But uh, right now, it's also a very important time for us here in the U.S., Uh, given the fact that thousands uh, observed or commemorated the 400-year observance of the first recorded Africans being brought to this land. Uh, Well, that has to be more than just a commemoration or more than uh, recognizing or more than some government-issued something. That needs to be something that our people now can utilize to not only mobilize and agitate, but now to move forward to making certain that we obtain some real justice and irrevocable liberation. And with that said, we have begun to uh, pick up from where El Malik El Shabazz left us with the legacy, the uh, work, and that, and, and of course, I'm talking about Malcolm X. And of course, in his last days, one of the main things that he instructed and taught and really worked to do was that we take our issues to the United Nations. Now, we all know that, you know, the United Nations is what it is. Okay, let's be realistic. But that's not the point. 
The point is that we still have to do certain things, and it enables us to particularly position ourselves with other countries, with our African diasporic brothers and sisters that do understand self-determination and the struggle for liberation. So we take action steps that enable us to do that. So again, this is what Brother Malcolm taught us, that we must take this issue of human rights violations, again, from civil rights to human rights, and we must put it in the place where it needs to be examined, understood, and so forth. So what has happened is this. We have looked at Mother Callie House, 1800s. Of course, we're talking about uh, ex-slave compensation, is what she called it, in the 1800s. And she went to jail for that struggle. Fast forward, we have, of course, none other than Queen Mother Moore. We have none other than Paul Robeson, William Patterson, would we charge genocide in 1951, 1952, taking that to the United Nations. Then there's other, Dr. Robert Brock. Uh, there's, there's so many others. But the point is, what are we going to do now? So we're given this 400 year to wake us up and help us to realize that it's been 400 years. What are we really going to do? It's got to be more than just, I want to sit next to you at a restaurant, or I want to uh, be able to marry somebody that's not of my particular heritage, or, or I want to go to the school. Okay, fine. We're in the 21st century now. What about, one, where's our own schools? Not charter, our own. Where's our health facilities? Our own. And this is interesting. If our youth, our children, and their parents are now in incredible amount of debt as a result of going to so-called higher education, should we not be saying that as a, uh, a result of 400 years that that kind of thing should be rescinded, that student loan thing should be rescinded? And for the future, our students, our people, period, should not be paying to go to school. Here's a simple analogy. If Bill Boglaski is paying $5,000 per year to go to college, and little sister Keisha and Raheem are paying $5,000 a year to go to school, so tell me why they should pay the same amount of money as Bilisky or whomever is paying when their ancestors didn't do nothing to help build this country. Well, not just to help build it, to build this country with blood, sweat, and tears. Why are both of these students paying the same tuition? That, to me, he says something very critical about us, that we are allowing it, that we're allowing our students and our parents to go in this severe debt. Now we have the opportunity to say, mm -mm, no. Same thing in terms of our political prisoners. Why do we have to look at the documents that says, COINTELPRO said that we're coming after you if you're black, and da 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 da. Why are our brothers and sisters sitting there 30, 40 years, and we are not saying what we need to say in the international course to the degree, to the level that we must? So, family, this is what we're saying. MWM is now the first global movement for women and girls of African descent worldwide. 
a few years ago we put a call out. We are thankful for those who, who supported and helped. Uh, you know, we definitely give thanks for our brothers, uh, particularly our brothers of, of the AAPRP, uh, you know, the general counsel, because they stepped up and a few other groups stepped up. But overall, it was very interesting to not see the kind of support that we had hoped. Uh, we're over it now, by the way, but, but we realize that the value of history for us as a people is a good conversation, but when it's right in your face, that's another situation. So again, we've grown, we're developed, so now we say to our people, we charge genocide. Now picking up the mantle from Malcolm X, Queen Mother Moore, uh, uh, the others, we're saying we charge genocide 21. This is the 21st century. We have 21 at least demands. So it's not just reparatory justice, which of course is in the forefront, but we're saying how are we going to make some of this happen and educate our people simultaneously? So here it is. On December of last year, we were at the United Nations and made the announcement officially. And then in August, for Black August, we went to uh, Seneca Valley or Seneca Village in New York to officiate the We Charge Genocide campaign. Genocide for us is not just the obvious. It's not just, I'm gonna put you up to the wall and shoot you, I'm gonna put you in a gas chamber, or I'm gonna hang you. Genocide today is a lot more sophisticated and definitely as brutal. And so we have to now deal with it accordingly. So. We're now calling on our brothers and sisters to help us educate the masses of our people first in understanding what is our civil rights, but also what are our human rights and what must we now do to obtain can I, that. Can I get you pause for one I'm second? I'm sorry. Just want to, uh, can I get you to pause for one okay. second? I want to yep. let uh, Brother James and uh, Sister Eunice, we have you. We've come to you shortly. We'll see you. Okay, very good. Okay, I'm going to wrap it up, but here it is. Again, what is, what, what is our response to 400 years, family? That's really it. What, is the, what, what kind of action must we now exemplify, particularly to, to these young folks? Because they're really getting some mixed messages and misinformation. So we need to show and demonstrate not only the ideas of functional unity, operational unity, but now some practical unity. And here it is again. We charge genocide 21. That's what we're bringing forward now. And with that, we're starting with a million signatures that we will take to the United Nations in December of 2020, right around the time of International Human Rights Day. But we don't want people to just sign a petition. We want people to help us go into the communities, educate about what human rights are, what is the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, uh, you know, all of those dynamics, all of that information. Uh, how was it applicable to Japan? How is it applicable to Israel? How are they getting reparations from the United States to this day? Uh, Etc. We need to educate our people. We don't just want them to sign something. We want them to know something. And so right now, there's a major campaign, and we're asking folks. Uh, you remember years ago that white folks had something, they said, buddy, can you spare a dime? 
I think it was during the Depression or something. But anyway, we say, and brother, sister, can you see a dollar? Meaning, we have work to do. We're talking about educating our going into the communities, going into the recreation centers, the libraries, the schools, wherever that we have information, that we have teachings about human rights. What is genocide? How is that applicable to uh, gentrification, for example? What about inferior education? These are all now a form of modern-day genocide and certainly environmental racism. Many of our people are drinking water that we know is toxic and they know is toxic. So what are we going to do? So, again, family, we really need your support on this one, and that is $1. We say if folks can't give up a dollar that they use for buying some chewing gum or soda or a bag of chips, um, they need to turn in their black card. Turn it in, give it up, because you, you have to now lose any kind of street or, or, or cultural credibility. For real. Because, again, there's no excuse. Uh, two weeks ago or so, we got the report that the cop that was fired, who, of course, we know we'll get another job somewhere else, um, they put a GoFundMe up for, for that person, and in 48 hours, they raised $100,000. Now, sisters, I love you all so much. But we know that sometimes nails and hair um, is like, you know, from 50 bucks to $100 a pop. And we're like, mm, you telling me we can't get a dollar? Okay. Anyway, <laughs> please pass the word, family. We really, really appreciate, you know, all the support. We're going to do this either way. Please know that. But, again, it's important that we show our people, our children, our enemies even to some degree, that we can do what we need to do in taking care of our own business. We don't need their grants and their corporate sponsoring for everything, and definitely not for this. So please go to our GoFundMe page. It is GoFundMe.com slash the dash black dash human dash rights dash project. That's our GoFundMe page. We're going to update it now. We've had it up for a while, but now the campaign is in full effect. You can also cash app us. Our cash app ID handle is dollar sign H-O-T-1111. Again, dollar sign H-O-T-1111. And you can also use PayPal. And that can be sent to our email address that represents the National Black Human Rights Project. And that email address is nbhrproject at gmail.com. Again, nb, as in black, hrproject, project spelled out, at gmail.com. Dot com. Brother Africa, thank you so very much. Family, we thank you all in advance <laughs> for your donations. And again, your donation is going to help us again publish and print information, just so you know what your dollars are going to go to. Publish and print information 
Information is going to be circulated in our communities, one-on-one -on -one in the hoods, about what human rights are, some history, et cetera, et cetera. It'll help us to hold forums and so forth because we plan a major activity next year in Washington, D.C. It is a black human rights in DABA. And with that, there's going to be pre-plebiscite sessions. And these are some of the things we're going to be training, teaching, sharing with our people nationwide. So we thank you all for all that you do and all that we know y'all are going to do. Again, please go to our GoFundMe. And it's GoFundMe slash the-black-human-rights-project. Or Cash App. Again, dollar sign, H-O-T-1111. We thank you all. And Brother Africa, back to you. Thank you, sister. You have a good day. Tell this audience, please support the call. So right now you're listening to Africa on the Move. We're going to take a quick station break, and we're going to discuss our theme tonight, which is a discussion on Columbia. We're going to discuss that with Brother James Jordan and Sister Eunice Escobar. We're going to do that by in two minutes. We're going to pause for the calls and we're going to take on this important subject matter of what is going on in Columbia. Great to be here. Thank you. Good, good, good. 
Brother James, can you give our listening audience just a backdrop on, in general, what is going on in Columbia? Uh, well, uh, it's been a very difficult time since uh, the peace accords began to be implemented in 2016 and uh, late November 2016. Since that time, there's been, you know, the numbers keep going up, uh, but there's over 700 social movement, uh, human, you know, human social movement le- leaders, human rights defenders, water protectors, you know, political opposition that have been murdered. And there's something like 150 former insurgents from the FARC-EP uh, guerrilla army that have also been killed. And these are people that have laid down their arms. I, I wanted to say this travel advisory, we're, we're actually, it's not, we're not calling for a boycott, not a, at this point. We, we do want people to go to Columbia, but we want them to go in responsible ways. If people, we're saying that Columbia is a dangerous country. It is a risky place to travel to if you don't, if you don't just follow the official line and go where the uh, government and the tourist agencies to go if you veer from that uh, official path, you're going to into an area where there's a lot of danger for social movement people and union organizers, and we're saying that Colombia isn't safe until it's safe for everyone. But we do encourage, for instance, we take delegations down to Colombia for people to learn what's going on, and there are ways to travel, I think, responsibly that supports the movement down there. But uh, it's important if you're going to go there to go there in a responsible way. You know, Sister uh, Eunice, when we talk about Colombia, a lot of times people inside the United States, they have no concept of the realities of other countries outside of the United States. What is the makeup of the people there? And in terms of political assassinations, it's my understanding that a lot of these assassinations are going on with the system of help of the U.S. government. Can you explain that dynamic? Um, yes. Uh, uh, historically, Afro-Colombian and indigenous people have been marginalized by the Colombian government. And historically, these two groups have been organizing against repression. So um, after... And since 1990, there has been a huge movement of Afro-Colombians and indigenous uh, trying to obtain the title for, for the land. And as this happened, a huge um, violence started in the community. So we have been saying Afro-Colombians and indigenous people, uh, the largest victims of the the war that has been happening in Colombia for the last 50 years. Out of the millions, I believe it's 7 million people that were displaced during the, the war, uh, approximately 30% of those were black people or Afro-Colombians. And now, um, after the sign of the peace agreement, very prominent Afro-Colombian and indigenous leaders have been killed. Uh, so Afro-Colombians and indigenous are the people that have been directly affected 
by the world and at the same time um despite of the very organized and a strong movement to support the peace and to defend the territories they have been now under great attack and many of our leaders have been um, assassinated. So part of these 702 social leaders that James just mentioned, uh, a great number of those are Afro-Colombian and indigenous. I don't know if this is good enough or you want me to expand. You can expand a little bit more. It was a, it wouldn't hurt because our people need to learn as much as they can. Yeah, Colombia has um, a large population of Afro descendants. We are um, after United States and Brazil, um, the third uh, country in in the Americas with the largest population of people of color or Afro Afro descendants. Um, we have been living in the territories of the. Pacific coast in the Atlantic coast of Colombia for for more than 400 years. Uh, people in Colombia, Afro-Colombian people, live um, very much in immersed in in nature. Uh, we practice a lot of the um, African spirituality, where people are very committed to protect the land to cultivate what they what we need and because of the richness of these territories and um and the vast amount of land that that is involved here and also the strategic position of the Afro Colombian and indigenous territories. Um this land has been a target not only by um um, what is it, armed forces, but also by the government. And so in, in our, in these territories, you see presence of armed groups. Um, there was a strong presence of the guerrilla movement, um, then paramilitaries, and now after the peace agreement was signed and the guerrillas uh, turned their arms, and left the territories or were moved to to territories this, uh, designated to them, um, there is a, a movement of or uh, the increase of paramilitary presence in the territories. Um, uh, we hear constantly of indigenous and Afro-Colombians having to leave their territories. This is within the last six months just because uh, checked is paid by paramilitary. You know, James, one of the things um, that I became aware of is that a lot of the paramilitary forces are also being controlled, being backed by U.S. multinational companies. Can you explain mm-hmm. that dynamic and the impact that they are having on not only inside the country, with the negotiation between the government and, 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 and uh, Fox? Well, one of the impacts of, I recently was in 
La Guajira, which is on the as far north as you can go in Colombia. And uh, La Guajira, the department, it's a, it's both a region and a, like a state, a department in Colombia. And it has the second highest um, Afri- or indigenous population in Colombia, and it also has a large and significant um, Afro-Colombian population there too. But there you really see the impact of the uh, foreign companies, the foreign coal mining companies in particular, because this is a desert area. It's already suffering from drought, and it is made all the worse because they rob the water away from the streams and the rivers that feed the rural people and the indigenous people that feed their farms and their ability to feed themselves and have water for themselves. They steal away most of those water resources and what's left are contaminated already in a period of drought. And it's a situation now where every year something like six or 700 indigenous children there, mostly indigenous, not only, but mostly indigenous children there, die from thirst and from hunger, from malnutrition. And meanwhile, some of these uh, mining companies in the area have been caught including in the nearby department, next-door department, Cesar Drummond Coal, which is based out of Birmingham, Alabama, has been known to make payments to paramilitaries to keep uh, communities from organizing, to keep uh, workers from organizing unions. So the history and the repression and the poverty that affects the communities, the rural, indigenous, and Afro-Colombian communities is very much tied the corporate interests. So that's just one example. When we travel, uh, Eunice, I know, comes from an area where the violence, uh, political violence, is higher than anywhere else in Colombia and the north of Calca. And you travel in that area, and you see uh, the sustainable farming that the Afro-Colombians and the uh, indigenous and campesinos uh, engage in, you see that being replaced by just mile after mile after mile of monoculture, especially in that part of, you know, sugar cane. But just so it's definitely, and it's the same story too with the uh, mining and the hydroelectric developments, but it's a, you see, really graphically how the interests of the big corporations are being protected over and above the interests of the people. And and there's also the United States government involvement. I mean, that's both those areas I described, Calca and also in La Guajira are highly militarized. And uh, the U S government of course has spent billions of dollars funding militarization, Colombia and uh, their frequent visits and presence of U.S. military advisors and personnel in these areas. Okay, what we're going to do right now, uh, Jane Eunice, we got our panelists here. We're going to bring our panelists in, and they may have some questions or comments they'd like to uh, raise with you. We first going to bring in Anthony. The mic is yours. Uh, certainly. Uh, this question is directed to both of you. Um, from what I've uh, read, uh, there have been various wars going on in Colombia. 
throughout uh, uh, th- throughout its history. Uh, well, at least since uh, the Spanish incursion into that area uh, back in the four, uh, in the late uh, 15th century, up until the present day, and uh, and and what 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 have the what impact have these wars ha- have had on the masses of the people living in Colombia, and also. Um, what impact have um, have the multinationals have in terms of uh, preventing uh, people from organizing uh, uh, to get uh, you know genuine liberation? Do you want me to go first? Um, yeah. Uh, I I I think that you can expand a little bit. Um, but Colombia, you know, the the independence war in Colombia, um, the only thing that did for the poor people in Colombia was change from um, being in the hands of the Spaniards to the wealth in Colombia become um, out of the hand it, it become going in the hands of the rich Colombians. So we still see in Colombia the structure of um, social classes from from the colonial times. We have in Colombia five or six families that own the country. These are the aristocracy that has been in power in Colombia for, um, you know, from the 1600s. And um, what we see is that, that in, in, um, I was quoting one of my, I'm quoting one of my friends that said that the Colombian aristocracy is one of the most cruel aristocracies in Latin America. These, these people have killed thousands of people in Colombia to continue uh, their power and and their the riches of the riches not only in Colombia but in, in the world. And so this historical um, accumulation of of wealth and power has prevented the, the Colombian people to 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 have access to education, to have access to work, and that has led to the historical political struggle in Colombia. We had the large, the longest uh, guerrilla war in, in in any country because um, trying to fight these structures of power that are so um, embedded in our country. Um, the guerrilla, you know, and there has been also before the guerrillas was the the liberals versus the the the, the conservatives, and it has been a history of people fighting for land and fighting for opportunities. 
not knowing that really their their true enemies is five families that own the entire Colombia. Um, they, our history is that the leaders get killed. We have in the 1990s um, an entire political party, more than 5,000 people were killed just because um, they had a very strong movement. They were also in a, a part of a guerrilla movement, the M19, when they laid down the arms, uh, the entire um, the, the entire community was killed, more than 5,000 people. So we have a, a very, very sad story in Colombia in, in violation of human rights. This, of course, with the support of the United States, one of the things that I wanted to add is that the United States, through the Plan Colombia and through the, the war on drugs, I have and a strong um, hand in in the Colombian armed forces, with you know providing training to the military in the School of Americas in the United States. So it has been all these these human rights violations happening in Colombia has been with the um, okay of the United States. Um, we have Colombia uh, up to last two years ago was the country with the highest number of of um, reporters killed and um, labor union members killed and the statistics now they say that it's lower right they're not killing as many. Um, union leaders had it happened before, but the, the the thing is that there are no more unions in Colombia. That's why this very the numbers of union leaders killed had dropped considerably. And now, as we mentioned earlier, they're just killing the human, the social activists, human rights activists, and and so this this uh, the um, violence and the presence of paramilitaries and uh, the cruelty of the the, the ruling um, people in Colombia um, continue uh, being a, a very, very strong um, black to the movement. You know, people in Colombia continue organizing. You know, I'm always seeing, you know, Marches in Colombia that are hundreds and thousands of people in the streets asking for change, but the, our country continues in the same situation. And so, um, the second part of so this is kind of the history on the world and how it impacted the movement. Um, I don't know, James, if you want to take the second question. Uh, I think you did a really good uh, job giving an overview of the history. I, I'd just say briefly that over the period, and I don't know the exact statistics, you know, different people may give a, a little bit different, but basically over the something like 52 years of this uh, war, civil war between the government and the FARC, there's something like 220,000 people killed and 
90 something thousand people disappeared and Columbia still to this day, you know, it's gone back and forth and it's back on top as the country's the largest forcibly internally uh, displaced population about the unions. I'm glad that, uh, that Eunice brought that up because she explained very well, if there has been any decline in the sheer number of union killings, it's because the unions have been so decimated. Today in Colombia, there's a right around 4% un, uh, representation of the un, of the workforce, which is, uh, I believe it's below that now, but I'm not, not positive, but it's a lower representation than in countries where it's completely illegal to be a union member. Colombia is still the most dangerous place to be a labor organizer. Last year, there were... 34 people, 34 union organizers that were murdered the year before there had been 15. And this year, we work really closely with the Fensuagro uh, Agricultural Workers Union in Colombia. It's actually a federation of unions. And just between, just in the first six months of the year, they had 10 of their leaders were murdered. So this next year will probably surpass or this year that we're in now will probably surpass may have already surpassed what uh, we saw in 2019 and uh, again she hit the nail on the head if the numbers have gone down that's because the union movement has been so repressed and so intimidated so decimated by violence and uh, it's still the most dangerous place to be a labor organizer in the world Okay, we can bring in our next panelist, Brother Haki. The mic is yours. Yes, sir. I got two unrelated questions. Uh, first, I had a question uh, for the for the young for the sister, then a question for the young man. Uh, the question to the young sister is, um, you know, um, recently the photo uh, picture of uh, Wado, uh, the uh, the Venezuelan puppet uh, for the uh, CIA. They photographed him in the company of drug traffickers in Colombia. And I just want to ask her, does she know anything about this relationship between uh, Guado and drug traffickers out of Colombia? And for the young man, the question is, uh, FOC, there's been consideration, and uh, apparently that FOC is reconsidering the possibility in terms of getting um, uh, a regrouping in terms of going back to the bush to fight uh, this war since the peace accords uh, is not working out. So to the extent that he has the knowledge in terms of that, that whole process, uh, he can elaborate. Okay, thank you, for, thank you for your question. So this is actually uh, more, more interesting than, um, than what we think. Um, I just hear in the news yesterday that four members, four family members, Members of the guy in the picture with with Guaido were killed just um, two two days ago. Were killed, and so they um, they were they didn't know if they were killed because they're trying to send a message to the guy in the picture because they're going to start investigating. You know why he had that why that 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 picture was taken and and went or or if they were trying to kill him and he was able to escape and they killed his family. Anyway, so they are not only drug traffickers, but they are 
members of the most visible paramilitary uh, movement right now, in, group right now in Colombia. It's called Los Rastrojos. And these are the paramilitaries that are continually killing social leaders and um, human rights in Colombia. So they, um, their main um, work in Colombia is political. Um, I, I don't even think that they are uh, I mean, they are slightly trafficking too, but they are paid paramilitaries doing the dirty work that the Colombian government cannot do. Um, most of the time, in 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 towns like in in the North Cauca, um, they will send letters and put those letters in public spaces saying. You know, to all the um, guerrilla supporters and to all the human rights activists in this town, if you don't leave within 24 hours, we're going to kill you and all your family. So this group is um, is a very, very uh, dangerous group in Colombia with a terrible human rights um, history. So what is interesting is that, so what they're trying to investigate now is if the Colombian president or the Colombian government asked these this paramilitaries to bring Guaido back to Venezuela or to provide protection to them, um, that will establish, if they're able to prove that, that will establish the relationship between the Colombian government with the paramilitaries and at the same time the Colombian government and the paramilitaries supporting the uh, insurrection in in Venezuela. So that's why um, that picture has have so much um, publicity and, and you know, we've seen the results. Four family members already been killed because um, there's a lot behind that. I don't know if that's enough information for you. And the second question was to you, James. <laughs> right, and that, that had to do with the uh, regrouping, rearming of the the FARCP. Unfortunately, and get a little confusing uh, because we we we're we're talking really about three different, four different organizations that all use uh, the the label FARC. There's the FARC, which is the uh, Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia, and then they uh, became the FARC EP, Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia People's Army, and they no longer exist. They disarmed. Uh, they entered into the peace agreement with the um, Colombian government, and they ceased to exist officially as an insurgent army. But they kept the initials FARC, and now that stands for, for their legal political party, which is the Revolutionary Alternative Common Force. And But they are a legal, nonviolent political party. But that, when we talk about the FARC today... That's what that refers to, what they turned into. 
ever since the uh, peace accords went into effect, there was something like about a thousand uh, members of the FARC-EP that did not agree with going into the peace accord. I don't know the exact numbers, but they uh, never gave up arms and uh, continued to uh, exist on some level in different places. And over the past uh, three years with the ongoing violence against former insurgents and against uh, members of the social movements, many returned to the hills. And there's uh, I had heard numbers of around 3,000 people that returned to the hills to take up arms again. Uh, meanwhile, three leaders of the FARC-EP and two in particular who had been leaders of the negotiating team to work out the peace deal declared that the FARC-EP was regrouping and rearming, and they called themselves the FARC-EP Nuevo Poder, or New Power. So we usually just call them New Power or Nuevo Poder to uh, keep everything straight because it gets really confusing. But I would say right now, you know, I don't know the numbers, but there's also the ELN, the National Liberation Army in Colombia, which is an insurgent force of around 5,000 people. So we're looking at a situation where there's something, you know, somewhere around 8,000 uh, armed or rearmed insurgents in the hills in Colombia. So that's a, 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 a serious situation. And um, for us in the Alliance for Global Justice, where, you know, where I work, our position is that we continue to support the peace process and the peace accord, and we work for peace, and we work, as always, to for a negotiated uh, solution to the armed conflict. Um, we do not have any ties whatsoever, not even with the, you know, uh, we, we have no ties with with the FARC political party or with the New Poder or, or any of them, although we have met some of them in meetings that we, we have been to and heard presentations from them. But we regard them, we, we don't demonize them, we don't condemn them, we we also don't uh, approve or, or, I mean, we don't support them or endorse them, but we believe that the fact that they exist is an indication of the degree of crisis that the peace process is in. And uh, it the only way to get out of this crisis is for the government to honor its commitments to the peace process, for the U.S. government to stop undermining the peace process, and for a political solution to emerge in the crisis we averted. Okay, we can bring it another panel. Yeah, go ahead. Let me just follow real quickly. Let me just follow real quickly. I'm sort of perturbed, brother. I'm sort of perturbed. The young man's response was that I asked him a specific question in terms of FARC, okay? Uh, You clarify in terms of the position in terms of the the, the dual nature of what we know as FARC. Fine. But why do you feel a need to tell me about your philosophical position as it relates to, to, to armed struggle? I didn't, I didn't ask you that. I asked you a specific question about FARC. Can you tell me why you feel a need to tell me your philosophical position? I have, no, I have no desire to know what your philosophical position is. I wanted to know what FARC was. So why did you tell me that? 
Why? Uh, I think I was just adding it in there. I didn't mean to offend you or anything. I was getting a general discussion about the three different groups, and I also felt like that it was important to restate and uh, continue to restate that the problem that has arisen is a result of the crisis of the peace process and the uh, the um, activities of the U.S. government and the Colombian government to undermine this peace process, and therefore we need to, I mean, what I'm Whatever one thinks about the FARC-EP, they exist, the new FARC-EP, the new power FARC-EP. I do think that it's an important point to make that they exist because the peace accords have not been honored. And the peace accords have not been honored because of pressures by the U.S. government and the failure to meet those peace accords on the part of the Colombian government. So, yes, I think that if I'm going to answer a question about the rearming of the FARC-EP, and the new power that's important to give the context mm-hmm. that they exist because the peace process is in crisis. And, yes, I think it's important to make the point that we need to uh, hold our governments responsible and defend the peace process. And, and I just wanted to add also um, has an explanation. I probably wouldn't have given you the same answer, and it's just because – and. Um, uh, I, I really am always very cautious of, of this, uh, the repression that the people in Colombia, not only in Colombia, but here in the United States, have suffered when we use those two words. You know, I have friends that I have, that their, their home has been in, invaded by the FBI just because we mentioned those two words. So I do think that it's right. important when we, when we mention and when we talk about them, to clarify publicly and mostly over the phone, our position in, in refer to these groups. So um, I, I think that, um, that I actually appreciated that he made that clarification. Because when we talk about those, the, the groups, we need, we need to be very clear that we're just giving some facts and that uh, we are understanding the process, uh, but we also need to be very clear where our position is. So um, I, I think that um, that I will have given, I will have done the same thing just in my case, just for because I have been so close to repression, and I have been, um, I'm, I'm seeing um, constantly. In, uh, in Colombia, how people get attacked uh, just because mentioning those two words. So um, I, 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 I really want to to understand where we're coming from when when we have to make those statements, and most of all, talking publicly. Uh, I appreciate that. Just understand, understand. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Brother Moses, Michael Joe. Yes, greetings to the both of you. Uh, it's great to have you on the, the show. Uh, your experience and direct experience breathes a lot, a lot more vivid knowledge, uh, uh, and I appreciate that. 
your your life lives are on the line. And um, I really don't have any questions at this point. Uh, 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 I, obviously, it seems like you know the the fox should have never laid down their arms. It's, it's because nothing reactionary falls of its own accord. It has to be toppled. And and I don't know. I don't know. I've been second guessing this. It's anybody's twenty twenty hindsight. But uh, uh thank you. Hey James, what I would like for you to do and young lady, can you talk directly about the upcoming activities on the twenty seventh this month while y'all having it? How can people participate and what kind of impact you're expecting or hope you have? as relates to the overall objective of trying to change the nature of what's taking place in South Columbia. So, I, by the way, I just want to say hello to Bob. Uh, I haven't talked to him in a while. It's good to hear your voice. Um, <clears throat> in terms of what's coming up, uh, I can give a little history of that. Now, in the Alliance for Global Justice, we're also members of something called the People's Human Rights Observatory, which is a um, mostly Latin American uh, organizations, but it also includes members from Europe and includes us and SOA Watch. And uh, we had come up to this with this idea that as foreigners, uh, people from outside, well, not like, for instance, Eunice is Colombian, uh, but people living outside of Colombia and outside of the borders of Colombia, that we, we've noticed that with all this crisis of violence, the Colombian government is less responsive to ever to the cries and protests of the social movements and also to international pressure. On the other hand, the Colombian government has really worked hard to reverse its perception from being a dangerous country to being a tourist destination and they've made a lot of inroads uh, at, during the same time that the violence against uh, popular movements has risen. Uh, their tourist, um, you know, the, the, the number of tourists that, that visit every year has risen exponentially. Uh, last year, I think it's four or four and a half million or something people. And uh, they have won major awards recently as the top South American destination for tourism. And we're just thinking, well, you know, first of all, this whole perception of Colombia as a safe place is just not true. It's a safe place if you only go to the big cities and to the tourist attractions. But if you want to see the incredibly beautiful mountains of Cauca, you might get caught in the crossfire of, um, you know, riot troops forcibly uh, removing crops uh, in, in rural areas. You might get in, caught in the crossfire of paramilitaries battling uh, dissident uh, insurgents. I mean, there, there are so many potentials for violence that could happen if you go into the places where people are really being repressed. You could be putting yourself in risk if you're accompanying a union leader who's speaking out against the government. So we are saying that, no, Colombia is not a safe place. 
until it's safe for everybody, until it's safe for the popular movements, until we can go and meet with our friends and our comrades and our allies in peace and in safety. And the idea, too, is that maybe because Colombia has cared so much and worked so hard to change how it is perceived, to change its reputation, maybe this is an area of vulnerability, vulnerability where if we can build this campaign, this People's Travel Advisory on Colombia, that we can get them to listen to us as internationals of saying, no, it's not true. It's not a, a safe place. It's not a tourist destination until it's safe for everyone. So what's happening on the 27th is basically a kickoff to this campaign. We are going to have uh, various events. You know, in, in cities where there are embassies and consulates and, and several ones, uh, we are going to have a, a variety of different activities, uh, vigils, pickets, or maybe just people uh, going by for to uh, have a scheduled visit with the consuls or with the yeah the ambassadors uh, to give them a copy of the People's Travel Advisory and to give them a cover letter with basically two demands. They are demands that the the uh, violence, the political violence, right-wing political violence against social movements that it end and that the government honor its uh, commitments to the peace process. So we plan basically on the 27th, we're kicking, we're giving these documents to consulates and to embassies and asking for an official response. And we're kicking off a campaign around this people's travel advisory that we may into, that we intend to maintain. I will just add to this that since this began, we have a, uh, been calling together and organizing a new coalition and Lee you've participated in that and uh, the coalition includes organizations from Canada the United States and Mexico uh, basically a co it, it, it's called the coalition for peace in Colombia and this will be our first real activity as that coalition so um, oh and uh, you can go, we, we have a new website that is actually, I'm finishing it up tonight, but it's actually up there right now. It's called a Coalition for Peace in Colombia.org. And uh, I'm right in the middle of putting up new content. Can you talk just a little bit about the different cities where the protesters will take place? What would entail these protests? And I think also you even target certain certain buildings, like the federal federal building and General Motors. Can you explain why General Motors car dealership? Well, what is that relationship? Yeah, that's a good others? thing. To, that's a real good thing to bring up. Uh, of course, uh, I mean there there will be uh, demonstrations and people taking in the advisory in in Washington D.C. will probably. I imagine be the biggest one and um there will be one in chicago one in boston new york miami san francisco these are all cities where there are consulates there's also going to be a demonstration and uh you know visit to the embassies in mexico city and in lima peru and uh and in toronto canada 
and there will also be some other demonstrations going on in Mexico. I believe there are some things being uh, planned in Switzerland and Spain, too, but I haven't gotten the latest uh, information on that. And then there are some cities where we don't have a consulate. For instance, in my city in Tucson, we're going to be demonstrating outside of the federal building. In Sacramento, so, yeah, there, there, there are some things happening like that where uh, – for instance, recommending federal buildings as a symbol of like the U.S. support for oppression in Colombia. In Sacramento and in Detroit, they are making a tie-in with uh, General Motors, which is very uh, poignant right now because there is the strike going on by the UAW union. And General Motors has... Um, not honored, you know, has not met the needs of they, they have a big plant in Bogota in Colombia and s several of their former workers received um, injuries that had to do with the on-the-job conditions at General Motors and they have never been justly compensated and they have been uh, waging protests and campaigns going on for several years now, including a uh, ongoing presence outside the U.S. Embassy demanding justice from General Motors. So it's just an interesting confluence of events right now. Um, the the strike going on, we're seeing how General Motors doesn't care for the health care of its former workers in Bogota, nor does it care for the health care of its current striking workers because it just cut off payments for their health care and it just kind of underscores you know how our struggles cut across um, national boundaries uh, just that that call for you know a uh, solidarity of the worker in Detroit and the worker in Sacramento with the worker in, in Bogota so anyway, in, in uh, Detroit, I know that their demonstration is very much connecting with solidarity for the workers, General Motors on strike here, and the injured workers there, and connecting that with the, you know, need for transformation of Colombian society. And in um, Sacramento, oh, no, I think in, I was saying Sacramento and Portland, they're going to be doing a demonstration outside of a Chevy dealership that'll make those same ties. In Sacramento, they're actually planning on uh, picketing outside of a sporting goods store that advertises, um, I guess, hunting or sporting uh, trips to Colombia. Okay, for those listening to the program... Um, James, and then I'll come to Eunice. Can you just give the people a contact number, email, where they can um, call you if they want to decide to join and participate? Something that I wanted to add is that, that is uh, a um, message from the communities in Colombia. So we do want people to travel to Colombia to visit the community and to learn about their situation and, and to come back and spread the word in in the United States. Um, I, I receive calls all the time uh, asking that the people in the community because uh, that really helps 
So I understand um, um, James is taking a delegation to Colombia to some of the communities. I will be taking one uh, delegation um, in November. My delegations are always uh, led and organized by, by black people and to visit black communities. Um, so if any of the audience or any of you are interested, uh, uh, my email is Eunice, E-U-N-I-C-E, M has a Mary, I-N-C-A, at gmail.com. Yeah, I just want to... I, I really appreciate what you just said because we're actually we're definitely not calling for a boycott of travel to Colombia. Uh, what we are calling for is responsible travel to Colombia. And one of the ways to travel responsibly to Colombia is to go in these solidarity delegations. And she's correct. We have one coming up. Uh, I, I know uh, Witness for Peace and uh, and several good groups take delegations down there regularly and the other thing too is just when you go to Colombia pay some attention to what what's going on there I mean even if you're going just to have a good vacation a good tourist time you know think about you know what you could do to support the popular movements down there maybe make a contribution to a group down there or to people here organizations here that are working for peace in Colombia or think about you know uh, I don't know you know just communicating with authorities but travel responsibly don't it's uh there's Colombia needs our solidarity and we have a lot of responsibility because of where we come from for what's happening there, but people should travel there and learn what's going on. Uh, people can contact me at james at afdj.org, which is the AFDJ for Alliance for Global Justice. Okay, on that note, we'd like to thank James and Eunice for sharing their perspectives on what's going on in Colombia. Um, they'll be holding protests all over the country and the world. Please check in um, with them in Alliance for Global Justice to find out the closest location and support them. One of the things real quickly in terms of how they can support y'all, I also understand you may be asking people to have phone call-ins and writing cards. Can you just quickly elaborate a little bit on that, that particular technique and what you hope to gain by that? Uh, I, things like that really make a difference. I mean, sometimes it seems like we're just doing the same thing again and again, like send another email, make another phone call, calling for the peace of Columbia or this and that. But I've just seen that those things have real effects. We've seen political prisoners who have been freed. We've seen uh, people who are in danger, who have uh, been able to find some safety. Uh in no small part because of the intervention of, uh, you know, uh, international solidarity activists. And 
we have a you know our movement to change policies in here in the United States towards Colombia is part of our movement to change our own country and make it a more uh, just place. So, so all of this, the phone calling, the emails are just part of that. And, and I encourage people just to visit our websites uh, to find out how to get hooked in. Um, yeah, yeah, just go to look, look us up, uh, visit our websites, and we're organizing all the time. Which is, your website again is what? Well, uh, for the Alliance for Global Justice, it's afgj.org. And then for the new coalition, it's coalitionforpeaceincolumbia.org. And then uh, Eunice may have a website to share, I imagine. Uh, no, that's fine with those two. We can work with those two. Okay. Mm-hmm. And Eunice, being from Columbia, I'll give you the final say. Which your final thoughts you'd like to share with our listening audience? Could you repeat, please? What is your final thoughts that you'd like to share with our listening audience? Okay, thank you. Um, as um, I stated before, it is important for people in the United States to understand that that our taxpayers are paying uh, for a lot of the human rights violations that are happening in Colombia. The United States, um, I think Colombia is the, the third or fourth country receiving military aid from the United States, and that's what is also important, our phone calls and our postcards, because we are funding what is happening in Colombia. And so it is important for us to to say how our taxpayers want, uh, how our tax money is invested in these countries. We want money that goes to Colombia to support um, social movements, to support community groups, to support the peace process happening in Colombia. We don't want to continue uh, supporting military forces in Colombia. We don't want to continue supporting paramilitaries in Colombia. So it, it, it is very important for people in the United States to understand that we do have an important role in supporting the peace in Colombia. There's millions of dollars that have been uh, awarded to Colombia for the implementation of the peace agreement, but the Colombian government, and it's only one sector of the Colombian government and one sector of the Colombian people that do not want to have peace in Colombia because war will continue keeping the people that do not want to have peace in Colombia in power. Also because, as we know, in the United States, war is very profitable. And, and while people continue talking about world, we'll not have the time to, to talk about corruption and to talk about human rights violations and to talk about other things that is, are very important for the Colombian people. And I just want to invite everybody to come and support our delegations. It is very important um, to support the delegation that James is doing. It's very important to support the delegation led by people of color. There is a delegation 
um, can from your just this way. I just don't have the information, but you probably can Google it. It is Afro Latinos activists or Afro Latino solidarity. It's led by a young woman from New York, and I'm leading a delegation in November. That's how we connect our struggles. And it's, uh, I mean, I've been doing this since 2007. I bring a lot of young people to Colombia to get immersed in the Colombian culture and believe me, it's a life changing experience. And also, it's a way that we can support our brothers and sisters in Colombia, being there and, and letting them know that. That, that we're supporting the struggle. And, and, on note, mm-hmm. and on that note, we'd like to thank James and Eunice for sharing their perspective on what's going on in Columbia. And to our listening audience, we'd like to thank you for allowing us the opportunity to come to your home this evening. What we're going to do right now, we're going to take a quick station break, and when we come back, we'll have our final thoughts. With our, with our political panelists. You are listening to Africa on the Moon. It's a weekly radio program that comes on every Sunday evening from 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern Time, U.S. We try to provide you information so you can think more clearly and to introduce you to, into organizations so you can find one to work with. Because we know that as oppressed people, the only way you're going to become organized is to be organized is to be in an organization. The only way we can free ourselves is to be organized and be in an organization. Organization is the weapon of the press, so we encourage you. When you hear these organizations, check them out. Join some of them. You might like it, but you need to be organized. So anyway, we can take a station break, and we'll come back. We'll come back with our final thoughts. You have been listening to Africa on the Moon. Perspective on the legacy of 
have Brother Rob Mugabe to the call for supporting the Million Women Watch Genocide Project and Campaign to having a better understanding on what's going on in Colombia with James Jordan and Janice Escobar. Right now, we're going to our final thoughts and closing for our night for tonight, and we'll start with Moses. Moses, your final thoughts for the night. Thank you, thank you, thank you. It was a very, very rich and enlightening uh, show tonight. Uh, I thought, you know, it was particularly good, uh, and uh, it was good to hear James and and uh, and Eunice and uh, Obi and uh, um, I can't Empress. remember the other young lady, Empress, uh, Empress. Empress uh, um, but yeah, it was very, very good. I look forward to more eventful, eventful shows. Okay, thank you. Have a good night. Uh, thank you, Brother Moses. Brother Anthony, your final thoughts for tonight. Um, uh, my final thought for tonight is that I thought the program was uh, very informative, especially with regard to the history of uh, Colombia and uh, you know shedding some light on the situation in Zimbabwe. And uh, I would encourage uh, people to uh, get involved, find an organization that is working for people's liberation and join it because we need to be organized more than ever. Thank you, Anthony. And we now go to Brother Hackey. Brother Hackey, you find the thoughts for tonight. Yeah, real quickly, a couple of things. First, uh, after awareness, we're going to solidarity tour to Cuba. Trip takes place October 31st and November 6th. For more information, call us at 804-549-7492 or area code 202-714-9435 or email us at African Awareness Association, all one word, number two, at gmail.com. And we encourage people to go to Cuba for themselves and see, you know, the greatness of Cuba. Uh, my second thing is that, you know, recently I read an article about a young sister, a young 10-year-old by the name of Promise Sawyer, and she was being ridiculed about wearing her afro. And she talked to her mother, and in the process she, she formulated an idea which, which says that, you know, not only is she proud in terms of her afro, but she's going to make her afro bigger and better. So that kind of self-esteem is important to our children. And one of the things that I always encourage, you know, people to do it's a one of the things we have to do when we talk about the longevity or the support of our children. One of the things we have to do is that we have to we have to teach them their history. In addition to that history, we have to teach them teach them to play an instrument. But the instruments help them understand, sharpen their cognitive abilities in terms of understanding things from an abstract point of view. So those kind of things we need in the community, but we have to have organizations in the community, institutions, in order to finalize those kind of ideas. So I encourage people to get busy. Uh, create those institutions, because as Brother Anthony said, uh, one thing is very, very clear. As the society continues to unravel, it uh, becomes increasingly perilous for you know, African people in society. So we have to unravel the matrix because it's in our best interest. And having said that, Brother Africa, you have a good night. Thank you, Brother Haki. Thank all my panelists. Thank all my participants. And we'd like to thank you, the audience, for always allowing us to come to your home where you can speak truth to power and to provide you information so you can use it as a tool for liberation. That's to help liberate your people and help liberate humanity from all the various forms of oppression. Until next time, 
you see next week. Let's always strive to go forward with Apple backwards level. And no matter how difficult the situation seems, don't give up and keep your head up. Because one day you will make it. You got to listen to Africa on the moon. You can 